Well, thank you for that prayer. Really appreciate that so much, more than you know. Um, Spurgeon used to say uh, to his young men uh, in his pastor's college, beg your people to pray for you. Uh, let them know you desperately need it. And so we do desperately need your prayers. So thank you so much for that. Well, I was thinking, uh, Michelle, well, there she goes. Michelle, what's up with you and Mike and Man Camp? And this is like the second baby thing we had to like jockey around, you know? <laughs> so for those of you that are a little newer to our church, Mike was, uh, this was a couple years ago, I guess. And, uh, and so anyway, he was on high alert because Michelle was due and he went to man camp and it's about a two and a half, well, two hours away, you know, and they thought that was close enough for him to get back if, if something happened. And so he was sleeping in the bunk below me. And, uh, all I remember is like five in the morning his alarm came off, came off or his phone went off and, and it was Michelle calling him and said, Hey, it's time. And, uh, so he was scrambled around like crazy and, he grabbed his stuff. We said, hey, don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll take care. We'll pack your stuff, and we'll bring your sleeping bag and all this stuff. You just go. So he t- tore out of there and uh, got down to the first little town where he could get some gas, and he realized that he left without his wallet. And uh, so he had all he could do was go around asking people for donations at the gas station, and they were all kind of going... You know, he just looked like a crazy man. Apparently, he had that you know, crazy look, like, I got to get to my wife. And, you know, it sounded like so... Like, fake, like, hey, my wife's in labor, I gotta get here, I need some gas money. Like, it was like totally like made up, you know? But it was so, so real, and if they only knew Mike, right, of all people, right, he'd be the last guy that would try to rip you off or hurt you. So he was like finding anything he could in his truck, I'll give you this, I'll give you anything. He's like bartering with people. And uh, finally, a guy was uh, merciful and gave him about 20 bucks, I think, and he was able to get, get back here, but it was just the funniest thing to... Think of Mike in that situation. Um, everybody thinking he was like a some derelict homeless guy trying to rip him off, you know. But anyway, well, take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter nine, and uh, we are making some progress here, and we are almost done. Just a few chapters away, it'll probably take us up until the end of uh, the fall semester. Uh, so we probably got about four or five, maybe six more messages from the book of Ecclesiastes, but tonight's message uh, I've entitled Dreading Death or Loving Life. Dreading Death or Loving Life. And uh, you're doing one of those two things. You're either dreading life, or excuse me, you're either dreading death, or you are loving life. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the one thing that normally we don't like to talk about or even think about. In fact, we tend to do everything we can to avoid this subject. I'm referring to death. And uh, the only time we think about death is when someone dies. And even then we mask it with other words so that we don't have to mention the word death or died. Our culture has developed a, a list of phrases to use when someone dies. We say things like they've passed away or they've passed on, or they're no longer with us, or in an attempt to lighten up the harsh reality of of death, sometimes we say things like, well, they're pushing up daisies, or they kicked the bucket, or they bit the dust, or they bought the farm, right? We say these kinds of things just to kind of lighten this thing up called death. And I don't know if you've ever noticed 
whenever you, you go to a funeral, just the, the, the many creative ways that we as humans have devised to beautify death. Have you noticed that? I mean, have you ever noticed how elegant funeral homes are, right? I mean, it's like you're walking into this elegant palace. Um, they, they, the, they, they play soft, soothing music. They, they, you know, you can purchase these very stylish, chic-looking caskets. Uh, they dress up the, the dead body and put makeup on them to make them look as nice as possible. Um, they surround and cover the coffin with these gorgeous flower sprays. It's really, it's, it's beautiful, right? All these flowers. Um, they, they ride the family around in these fancy limousines with, you know, they look like they just drove off the showroom, right, with shiny hubcaps. And, and uh, they put, uh, you know, that bright green astroturf over the hole in the ground so you don't see all the dirt and the roots and where the person's going to be. They, they cover it up with that astroturf and make it look all pretty. Again, I think all these things are designed to mask the ugliness of death and make it easier for us to deal with because none of us really deal with it that well. The truth of the matter, though, is all the witty remarks and the pretty flowers and the music do nothing to change the fact that we're all going to die someday and there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, even in the age of ICUs and surgery and organ transplants and chemotherapy and wonder drugs and, and all the other advances in medicine and technology, all the most gifted physician or most skilled surgeon can do is postpone the inevitable. We are all destined to die. And none of us knows when that's going to happen or how it's going to happen. And we learned um, last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 8, it says, No man has authority over the day of his death. We're going to see next week in, in chapter 9, verse 12, it says, Man does not know his time. So no man has the authority over the day of his death. No man knows the time of his death. But we do know in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes judgment. In other words, death is not an accident. It is an appointment. It's an appointment. And uh, all of us have an appointment with death someday, and we, we can't do anything about it. We can't do anything to cancel it. Now, it's all sounding very morbid, right? You sound like you must be reading the book of Ecclesiastes, Ken. You're sounding really depressing and cynical and, you know, um, you know where's God in all this, right? Well, rather than being a morbid thought, the thought that we're all going to die someday, that we have an appointment with death and there's nothing that we can do to cancel it, rather than that being a, a morbid thought, I would submit to you that that should be a motivating thought. And rather than spending our entire lives trying to not think about death, I believe we should spend our entire lives thinking about death. Like all the time, like every day, thinking about death. And we're going to see here in this next section of Ecclesiastes how our death should impact our life. Namely, that meditating more on our death is essential to making the most of our lives. Let me say that again. Really what we're going to see tonight is that that meditating more on our death is essential to making the most of our life. In other words, the more we think about our death, the better we will live our lives. And here in chapter 9, Solomon continued his very blunt commentary on the harsh reality of life apart from God. And after he expressed his frustration in chapter 8, 
regarding the mysteries and uncertainties of, uh, uncertainties of life, how, how there are just some things that no matter how smart he was, uh, no matter how hard he tried or how much time he invested, he just couldn't understand certain things about life. He, he was the frustrated philosopher, if you will. But there was one thing he knew for certain that was not a mystery, that he and everyone else on this planet was going to die. That's the one thing he could take to the bank. And in this final section of of his personal memoirs here, chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, um, he returned to the theme of the reality and inevitability of death. And if you still have your outline tucked in here in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's some on the back table there, you'll see that we're moving into the last section of, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's really, the whole thing is about the certainty of death. And so Solomon, as we have seen, is, is, is ruthless and relentless in reminding us of our mortality. In every chapter so far, uh, starting in chapter 1, Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Every chapter so far, he's mentioned something about death. And I would submit to you that, that death is arguably everyone's greatest fear in life. I mean, if we took a survey, right, polled the average person walking down the street, hey, what's your greatest fear? What would they say? Death. That's probably their greatest fear. Um. But I think that facing our worst fear will bring out the best in us. Facing our worst fear will bring out the best in us. Someone said this, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, we laugh at that, but we know the reality is that we're going to be there, right? There's no escaping when it is our time to go. And listen, some of you are 18 years old, 17, 18 years old in here. You're, you're, you got the, your whole life ahead of you. And some of you maybe are pushing 70, 75, 80, right? And you've got most of your life behind you. But the one common denominator, right, between all of us is that there's a calendar, okay, with your name on it, and there's a date that's circled, okay? God's got a calendar, Okay? And there's a date on there that, that's circled. It's not circled on your calendar, right? You wish you knew what date that was. You don't know, but it's circled on God's calendar. And He knows exactly the day of your death. And so uh, I want us to see as we go through these first 10 verses, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 10 in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 tonight. And I've just broken this up into two sections. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the inevitability of death. And then in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see the enjoyability of life. And this is really what we're going to see is where, where death and life meet, where they converge, and how really our death, thinking about our death, the inevitability of death, really allows us to experience the enjoyability of life. And that's the connection. Well, let's look first of all at what Solomon says about the inevitability of death or the certainty of death. Verse 1, for I have taken all this to my heart, everything that he's been talking about so far uh, in his memoirs, chapters 1 through 8, I've taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men in their deeds are in the hand of God. 
Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. And so the key phrase there, I think, is that he says that everything, right, are in, are in the hand of God or is in the hands of God. When we realize that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, that we can't figure him out, we can't figure life out, the only natural thing to do is to humbly submit our lives and destiny to his sovereign, wise, loving hands. And so Solomon says, hey, it's all in his hands. Our entire future is unknown. It's unknowable. We have no clue what's going to happen in our lives. Whether we will succeed or fail, uh, or, or good things will happen to us, or bad things will happen to us. That phrase there, it says, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, anything awaits him. That's a repeated phrase a number of times in this final section Verse 12, moreover, man does not know his time. Chapter 10, verse 14, uh, yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen. Who can tell him what will come after him? Chapter 11, verse 2, divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Uh, Chapter uh, 11, verse 6, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So we don't know. The whole point is we don't know. And so obviously we are not the masters of our own fate. Our lives are subject to God's sovereign will. Our lives are in His hands. That's what He's saying here. Under His control. And while our lives may be marked by uncertainty, nothing surprises God. Nothing ever surprises God. Lots of stuff surprises us, right? We're going to be surprised tomorrow by some things that happen in our lives that we maybe could have never imagined would happen, right? But they don't come as a surprise to God. Now, this is important because there's a, there's a recent heresy in the church um, that has been building steam and momentum. It's called open theism. Have you heard of that? Uh, it's just this really crazy view of God that basically says God doesn't know everything, that God kind of left some things open to mystery, that even there's mysteries in God's mind. And so because he didn't want to micromanage the universe, uh, he kind of left some things out there that he didn't know the, the answers to. And so he's just kind of waiting to see what we do, and based on what we do, then he will respond accordingly. And uh, it's becoming very popular in seminaries, that some seminary professors are teaching this. There's books out there talking about this, and it really is it's, uh, it's blasphemous to say that God there's something that God doesn't know um, that's heresy. So God knows everything, but it's hard for us to know for sure if we are an object of God's love or hatred. This is, I think, what he's getting at here. He says, man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. In other words, is God for us or is God against us? Is he our friend or is he our foe? And, and we know this is, this is difficult, if not impossible, to interpret our circumstances in life. But we often do that, don't we? Something good happens, we think, oh, God must be happy with me. Something bad happens, oh, God must be mad at me. Isn't that our normal tendency? It's natural for us to conclude that God must not be pleased with us when we face some kind of adversity. Something bad happens, we're like, "Uh uh-oh, what did we do? What did we do wrong? Right? God's punishing us, God's judging us. Or we think, well, God must be pleased with us when we experience prosperity. God's happy with us. He's blessing us. 
And yet we need to understand it's unbiblical to think that all suffering or adversity is a result of personal sin. We shouldn't always assume that God is punishing us when bad things happen to us. That was the problem with Job's counselors. Job's counselors were dead wrong. They were saying, Job, it's obvious why you're suffering, man. You did something bad, man. And God is, 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 is taking you to the woodshed. He's punishing you. He's disciplining you. Well, they were dead wrong. That's not at all what was going on. You know, I, I, the whole idea of interpreting the circumstance, a lot of it has to do with your perspective. I will never forget the day I visited Jennifer Pigott, who was a former member of our church. They, they moved, the Pigots moved up to uh, Oklahoma. I was going to say Omaha, but that's not right. Oklahoma. I don't know if you knew that, but they moved up. Jason got a job transfer, but their little daughter, Haley, got a rare form of cancer called neuroblastoma. And uh, I remember going down to visiting and visiting with her uh, the first time. And, and there we were. Jennifer was standing by her daughter's side and she was hooked up to all sorts of stuff. And they didn't know what her future was. They didn't know if she was terminal uh, or what. And she looked at me, Jennifer looked at me and she said, Ken, I've got to believe that this is an act of love. I was shocked and blessed all at the same time. That here was a, a, a mom, right, a grieving mom grappling with the sovereignty of God and the love of God and the grace of God and that she was confident that God only acts in, in loving, wise ways, right, to his people, that he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Someone said this, you cannot use good and bad events as criteria to decide whether or not God loves you or hates you. Your future may have a mixture of the two. When trouble comes, it's easy to ask, what have I done to, the, to deserve this? How many times have you said that? that? That came out of my, well, it didn't come out of my mouth. It came out of my thoughts just the other day. And something happened, and I said, why me, God? And I said, oh, I can't believe I just thought that. Right? I mean, we think that. Some of us even say it. And we say, well, why, what did I do to deserve this? Right? When something bad happens to us, But when's the last time something good happened to you and you ask, why did I deserve this? We don't don't think about that, right? When the good things happen, when we get blessed, we don't say, well, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? The answer to both of those questions is, is what? Nothing, right? It's God's sovereignty, His wisdom, His love. So don't base um, God's favor on you based on your circumstances. He goes on to say, verse 2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and one for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one afraid to swear. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. So again, we've heard this theme before, and Solomon's kind of just continued to, this is one of his hobby horses, right, is, is this was an enigma in his mind, is how a righteous person and a wicked person or a good or bad person, a, a committed person, an uncommitted person, a clean person, an unclean person, someone who's willing to, 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 to swear an oath and one who was not willing to do that, they all end up in the same place. They all end up in the grave. Now, what's, what's, what's wrong with that picture, Right? He's scratching his head going, that makes no sense. That doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem fair. 
The fact that all of us experience the same distribution of adversity and prosperity, right? When, when, when there's a flood, it's not like it only floods the unbeliever's house, it also floods the believer's house, right? When there's an earthquake, it doesn't just trash the unsaved people's houses, it trashes the saved people's houses, right? Uh, I mean, does your car break down, right? You're a Christian, does your car break down? Yeah, I mean, it's like we're not immune to trials and tribulations and, and difficulties, okay? And so what he's saying, we all experience the same things. And so living a righteous life doesn't seem to, to be any advantage there when it comes to escaping death or, or avoiding the trials of life. It's almost like God doesn't care if you're good or bad, if he rewards everyone the same with death. So the point is, why be good? Why, why not just go for it and, and live it up? if the end is the same for both people, right? Both kinds of people. And that's really how a lot of people in the world think, right? That's really the, the evolutionary philosophy of life that if there's no God, right? Follow this logic. If there's no God, then there can be no right and wrong, right? And if there's no right and wrong, there can be no consequences or there can be no judgment, no punishment. And so if there's no God, no right and wrong, no consequences, no punishment, then there's no holds bar. Just go for it. Just go, go and do whatever you want, right? You got nothing to fear. Well, notice what he goes on to say here, and this is, again, uh, right on the heels of, 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 of talking about man's sinfulness. Notice verse 3. He says, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. We, we've looked at that verse before, especially in the introduction of our, of our series here in Ecclesiastes, that, that that's a description of man's depravity, how wicked and how wretched man is in their sin. This is how sinful we are, that uh, sin is likened to not just evil, but insanity. I mean, we don't make any sense, right? It makes no sense, some of the things that we do. Right? That's insane. Some of the things we think, some of the things we say, some of the things we do, right? It's insane. But isn't that what Romans 1 says is the ultimate downgrade of man when you forsake the truth or you exchange the truth of God for a lie? Uh, God gives you over, right, to immorality. Then he gives you over to homosexuality. And then thirdly, he gives you over to insanity where you just do crazy things and your mind doesn't work right. And... uh, that's a scary place to be, but that's what he's describing there is man's, man's sinfulness there, uh, that there is insanity in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Notice verse 4, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. Kind of a funny image there, but lest we despair, what Solomon is saying here is, is we need to keep in mind that that, that life has its advantages over death, okay? We're all going to die, but if you're not dead yet, there's hope, right? There, there's something to look forward to. Um, you still have a capacity to enjoy life. You, you can look forward to graduating from college, some of you, right? Or getting married or having kids or getting that job or going on that whatever, that vacation, right? So there's still hope. There's things to look forward to um, if you're not dead yet. And then he says it's, it's better. He says a live dog is better than a dead lion. Now, they didn't, 
they didn't have the same view of dogs as we have today. I mean, our dogs are like pets. We love our dogs. They're precious, right? They're sweet. We, you know, they're not despised, although ours is despised by my wife. She doesn't care for one of our dogs. Uh, he's definitely despised. But uh, for the most part, we love dogs. We, we go and buy dogs, and we, have, we, we raise dogs, and we live with dogs in our house and all that kind of stuff. But in, in those days, dogs were despised. They were like the lowest form of animal life. They were just mangy, mongrel, man, they're just a nuisance, right? Let's get rid of these dogs. So, so anytime a dog is mentioned in the scripture, it's not a positive thing. Uh, whereas a, a, the lion, right, it's considered the king of the beasts, right? Powerful, magnificent. And so what he's saying, listen, if you have your choice to be a dead lion or a live dog, take the live dog, right? It's better to be al- alive than dead. Uh, even if you're not honored, right, uh, like that, that lion. You've heard people use this expression, like you see somebody and, and you ask them how they're doing and, and they're doing all right, and then they say, well, uh, you know, maybe they're struggling with physical stuff or some, some problem in their life. Will say, they say it's better than the alternative, right? The alternative is I, I, I'm dead. I'm in the grave, right? So I'm, I'm glad I'm up walking and I'm, and I'm, and I'm uh, still alive. Achilles, um, in Homer's Odyssey, said it this way. He said, Say not a word in death's favor. I would rather be a paid servant in a poor man's house and be above ground than the king of kings among the dead. And so he's just giving us hope here, saying, Hey, listen, if you're still alive, um, appreciate that fact, right? Uh, Verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have any... Uh, longer, nor, nor they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. So he's simply saying, listen, dead people don't know a thing about what's going on in the world. They don't experience life's emotions or the world's experiences. I mean, they're done. They're gone. Now, again, we have to remember, lest we begin developing some um, doctrine of the end uh, or of the afterlife from the book of Ecclesiastes. That's not a very wise thing to do, okay? Um, so there are some people that use verses like this to, to prove that, you know, when you take your last breath, you go out of existence forever. That's the end of life. Um, others use it to say that, that when you die, your soul sleeps. You're not in a, in a conscious presence either in heaven or hell. But again, someone said this, I think it's really, really well said. It is senseless to build a doctrine of the hereafter on these verses, or in this book for this matter. Ecclesiastes represents man's conclusions as he searches for answers under the sun. In other words, he's limited in his perspective. It sets forth deductions based on observations and on logic, but not on divine revelation. It is what a wise man might think if he didn't have a Bible. So we have to keep that in mind when we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. That's why, by the way, I said this earlier, but atheists love this book. They're like, hey, I can find, you know, you've heard it said that you can find a verse in the Bible to prove anything you want. If you look hard enough, right? Well, atheists love some of these these, um, very uh, pessimistic, cynical statements about life and eternity. And they'll, they'll own those and use them to promote their cause. I mean, for example, think about it. If you didn't have a Bible... If you didn't have divine revelation, what would you think if you were standing by a grave and you watched them lower some guy down in the grave? 
down on the ground. And then the backhoe comes and dumps all the dirt on him. What would you conclude? If he didn't have a Bible, what would you conclude? That guy's done. It's over for him. There's nothing. It's, it, that's the end of bye-bye, see you later. There, there's nothing more that that person's going to experience. But we know that's not the end, right? We may have a common destiny and that we all die, but we don't have a common eternity. Amen? Big difference there. So the first thing that, that Solomon is pointing out here in, in these first six verses is the inevitability of death. The inevitability of death. And, and lest we... Um, sit here and say, well, okay, let's close in prayer. We'd all walk out of here going, well, that was an encouraging message. I really appreciate that. Um, it would be very easy to, to walk out of here brooding about our death, going, oh, no, I'm going to die, and I don't know when and how it's going to happen. And, and you walk around living life all scared and worried. Or you could just kind of be moping around like, Eeyore, oh, man, I'm going to die. And, you know, that's kind of how we would live our lives. But that's not where he ends this. He, he, that, he was kind of setting the stage to get to verse 7, where he basically says, listen, st- don't mope around uh, or, or brood about your death. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. And so here we have the enjoyability of life. Look at verse 7. He says, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then I'll just include verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. And so basically what he's saying here is in view of all the uncertainties of life, the, 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 of what the future may bring, um, whether it's adversity or prosperity, whether success or failure, uh, and in view of the certainty of death, where you know you're going to lose opportunity for enjoyment, Here he comes back to his conclusion. He just says, enjoy life. Don't let the unexplained mysteries of life, don't let the uncertainties of life, the fact that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in your life, don't let that keep you or prevent you from enjoying life. And again, if you've got your outline, uh, you'll see how this is the recurring uh, theme um, as he goes through Uh, His memoirs, again, chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Uh, Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he also has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And then from chapter 8, last week we looked at this, verse 15 So I committed pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. Notice the center of all those verses about enjoying life is who? 
Who's at the center of all that? God. God's at the center of all this talk about enjoyment. Um, God approves of, of us enjoying life. And not only does he approve of us, enjoying, of, of us enjoying life, he enables us to enjoy life. In other words, it's all right with God that we enjoy life. Um, we talk about things that are guilty pleasures, right? Things that we're not sure that it's okay that we enjoy. Listen, he's, he's describing here godly pleasures, things that, that he wants us to enjoy. And he spells out here in greater detail than, than he has previously uh, about the aspects of life which God created for us to enjoy. The Bible talks about that God gives us all things to enjoy, right? Like special occasions. Go then eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. The idea there is maybe some, some special occasion uh, that you would enjoy, uh, enjoy food, right? Nothing wrong with enjoying food and enjoying wine and enjoying drink. And, and uh, he goes on, he says, uh, let your clothes be white all the time. And the, the white clothes were the, the clothes that you would wear when you dress up for a party or a special occasion, right? Um, in other words, um, dress in your finest clothes, not just for special occasions, just wear your nice stuff every day. Just, just, just dress up and enjoy life. And he talks about uh, not letting oil be lacking on your head. The idea there is, you know, don't go about mourning, um, you know, wearing some sackcloth and putting dust on your head. No, dress up nice and put some, put some oil on your head. And it was the perfumes and the colognes. And, and I guess this is a biblical uh, reference to Bath and Body Works for you ladies, okay? It's okay to enjoy some of those, uh, some of those things, right? Um, nothing wrong with that. Um, God wants you to enjoy those kinds of things. Um, his, so his point is, listen, yeah, you're going to die. You're going to die someday. We get that, okay? But in the meantime, enjoy the, the good gifts that God gives you to enjoy. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Just take one day at a time, right? Thank you. Thank, thank the Lord every day you wake up for another day that you woke up, right? You woke up. And, and, and he sustained you through the night. He's given you life. He's given you breath. He's given you all things. So enjoy that day. Rejoice in that day. Be glad in that day. Make every occasion a special occasion, even if, even if it's ordinary, even if it's routine, you know? Um, I appreciate Kelly. Sometimes she'll be, you know, the, 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 it is a special occasion nowadays when we're all home at once to sit at the table for a meal. That seems to be something that's hard to do with teenagers and licenses and jobs, and they're all over the place now. And uh, but so whenever they're all home, she like wants to make it a big deal. Like she'll pull out the the nice dishes and she'll make up some you know really fancy meal and 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 make us feel special, even though it's just like Thursday night dinner, you know. But it's special. And uh, so make things special. Enjoy the simple things of life. Enjoy every day as a gift from God. Um, and then notice verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So he's assuming that God has blessed you, right, with a spouse, um, and presumably a family, and, and we're to find joy and happiness in that gift. In fact, in Proverbs, he talked about how a wife uh, was a gift from the Lord. 
uh, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Um, Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. You can't inherit a wife, right? Uh, that's that's got to be given to you by God. Um, and so he's saying, listen, enjoy life with the woman that you love all the days of your fleeting life. You say, well, I don't love her. Well, guess what? That's a problem because the Bible commands you to love her, right? Love, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So if you're saying, well, I'm having a hard time loving her, well, um, guess what? The Bible says you need to love your wife. And um, maybe the reason why you're not enjoying your wife is because you're not loving your wife, right? It's not unless you're your wife's fault, it's your fault, guys, right? Because we're not loving our wives the way the Scripture commands us to. We're not enjoying them the way the Bible says we should. How about this question? Are you enjoying your marriage or simply enduring your marriage? Are you enjoying your marriage or are you just enduring your marriage? Is the honeymoon over, right? The first few years are terrific, right? But then the rest are just tolerable. You just kind of put up with it, right? Unfortunately, that's the sad commentary on marriage, not just in the world, but in the church. And so uh, I'm just going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think it's a sin if you're just enduring your marriage. If you're just enduring your marriage and you're not enjoying your marriage, you're living in sin. Because the Bible commends us. He says, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. Warren Wiersbe said this, no matter how difficult life may be, there is great joy in the home of the man and woman who love each other and are faithful to their marriage vows. In other words, one of the, the, the Bible calls it the grace of life, right? First Peter chapter 3 uh, how you're supposed to live with your wife in an understanding way, uh, treat her with honor as a, as a co-heir or a fellow heir of the grace of life. Marriage is like the, the grace of life. It's one of the most precious gifts that God ever thought up to give us as his creatures. And he wants us to enjoy that. And so in the midst of all the uncertainties, all the adversities, the trials, the frustrations, the problems of life, there should be an oasis in the midst of all that, and that's your marriage that there's no other place you'd rather be than with your spouse, right? Because there's a sense of peace and there's a sense of love and there's a sense of joy and there's just a sense of, hey, you know what? If everything else in our life is just going down the tubes, we got each other, right? And at least this is going good. At least we can enjoy one another. Um, and uh, I think that's important, right? So you don't end up being the that couple when the kid, the last kid goes off to college and you're sitting there in your bathrobes at the breakfast table making toast and you like have nothing in common, right? Because you haven't enjoyed one another those 18, 19 years, right? As you were raising your kids, um, you were too focused on them and not focused enough on each other. So this is a good little exhortation for marriage, isn't it? Just to make sure you're cultivating your marriage, um, investing in your marriage, making sure... Um, that you truly are enjoying it as the gift that God intended it to be. If not, you're wasting it. You're wasting it. You're wasting a gift. Um, and not only are, you, are we to enjoy the, the things of life, the, the food and, the, and the, the, the drink and the clothes and, 
and the perfumes and colognes and, 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 and the, the uh, marital bliss and, and joy. But also notice we're to enjoy our job. I mean, that's another convicting thing, right? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in shield where you're going. In other words, just enjoy your job. I mean, whatever God has called you and gifted you to do, whether you're a doctor, you're a surgeon, you're a lawyer, you're a, you're a mechanic, you're a secretary, you're an engineer, you're a construction worker, you're a homemaker, whatever it is you do, you're a teacher, right? Work hard at it. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Work hard at it. Give it, give it all you have. Pour yourself into it. Because when death comes, you're going to have no more energies, no more abilities, no more opportunities to create, to invent, to plan, to brainstorm, to sweat, to serve all the things that God is allowing you to do right now in life. You're not going to have a chance to do this. And so again, I think this is a, a, a good mindset to have about work. Work is not a curse. So like, man, I wish they didn't mess up in the garden, then I wouldn't have to work. No, work is a blessing. God, God ordained work before the fall, Right? He told, he told Adam to go tend the garden. Got a little harder after the fall. Granted, right? But uh, work is not a curse. It's, it's a stewardship. It's a gift from God. I mean, the, the ability to work as well as a job, especially in these days, those are gifts, amen? That's a gift. That you have, if, you can, if you have the ability to work and you have a job, okay, you're not unemployed, right? That's a gift from God. And so whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And, and I would say this even, don't, don't live for the weekends, enjoy the week. Too many people are like, man, I can't wait to get done with work Friday, man, thank God it's Friday, right? Like, like it's a drag Monday through Friday. No, enjoy Monday through Friday. Don't just, en- God didn't just want us to enjoy two days out of the week, he wanted us to enjoy all the days of the week, Right? Don't wait till you, in, till, till you retire to enjoy life, right? Man, I can't wait till I'm done working, then I can really enjoy life. No, enjoy life now. Throw yourself into work. A- a- avoid idleness and laziness. Don't, don't be a slacker. The New Testament talks a lot about uh, a, a biblical work ethic. Probably my favorite is Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. You're familiar with this. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. I think if more Christians went to work with that mindset that I'm going to serve Jesus today, right? Talk about an amazing witness that would be in the workplace. I mean, just look around. At the, at, think about the people at your work. Or maybe some of you college kids, your, your work is school right now, right? So you're in class. You're seeing these kids sitting, you know, getting out of, come to walking into the parking lot from, their, from the college and, and going to sit in class. I mean, is there a joy? Is, is there an excitement? Uh, is there a sense of peace? Or is there just kind of this gloomy, oh, man, I hate this class. I got to do this. Or, man, I hate this job. And, and they're just kind of going through the motions, right? I mean, that should not be a Christian. At all, that should never be true of us. We should be realizing this is a this is a gift from God that I have a mind that can think, that can do math and do science, and you know take this class and pass. That's a gift from God. 
So all that having said, verses 1 through 10, at the bottom line here is this. Meditating on our appointment with death is the key to maximizing our enjoyment of life. Meditating on our appointment with death is the key to maximizing our enjoyment of life. None of us has control over how much time we have to live, right? None of us do, but we do have control over how we use that time that God gives us, okay? And I think the key to making most, the most of our time is to live in light of our inevitable death. In other words, when you, when you start thinking more about your dying, that, then you're ready to start living, and I think we, sh- we, sh- we should live, maybe another way to say it, we should live like we could die at any moment. Isn't that true? You, could you die at any moment? Could I die at any moment? And we, we should live that way. No reserves, no regrets, right? Those of you that are into sports, you, you, know the, the, you understand the concept of sudden death overtime, right? Sudden death overtime. It's a cool concept, Right? where the game ends in a tie, and then it's like sudden death overtime. What that means, the game could end suddenly, right, at any moment. Um, whoever scores the next point, goal, whatever, that's sudden death overtime. And uh, you notice the players during sudden death overtime. They get, they get some kind of second win, right? And they, and they play with this... this uh, you know, this, this urgency and this passion and they're just reckless and they're playing their hearts out during this sudden death overtime. Why? Because they know it could end at any moment and every ounce of energy counts in that moment. And so, unfortunately, we treat life, I think, as if it's the game without a time limit, but in reality, life is like sudden death overtime. It could end like that, right, for us. And so we need to live like that. And how will we live? Like they play, right? You, they play their hearts out. We need to live our hearts out urgently, passionately, with reckless abandon, not complacently, not casually. You ever watch a hockey game, sudden death overtime? They're not just kind of skating around. You know, they're just like, they're going crazy, right? Trying to get that goal in the net. And this is, uh, I think this is a lost concept in the church today, this thinking about death. Sounds kind of morbid, Right? I don't want to think about death. That's weird, Ken. Where'd you get that from? Well, check this out. These are some men from church history who found great joy in living in light of their inevitable death. Richard Baxter, a Puritan preacher, he said, I preach as a dying man to dying men never to preach again. In other words, he preached every sermon as if it was his last sermon. But this was the last sermon he was going to preach, and this was the last sermon that these people were going to hear. So there was an intensity about him. Jonathan Edwards, we're familiar with him, his 70 resolutions, right? When he was, I think, 18, 19 years old, he wrote these goals for life. One of them was this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying. Edwards, you're weird, dude. To think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. That was one of his resolutions. I want to think about my death on a regular basis. Another Puritan uh, said it this way, while I hope for pardon through the blood of the cross, I pray to be clothed with humility, to be quickened in thy way, to be more devoted to thee, to keep the end of my life in view, 
to be cured of the folly of delay and indecision, to know how frail I am, to number my days and apply my heart unto wisdom. And I think these are just a few examples of men who found the secret to making the most of their life. And that is, that is thinking about your death more frequently causes you to live more fervently. And I would just say this. How, how, you say, how do you know? How do you know that if you're living in light of your imminent death, your, your, your inevitable death? How do you do that? Well, if you knew your life was going to end in a month, okay, that you only had one month to live, how much would your life change? Think about that. I mean, if you knew that your life was going to end in a month, how much would your life change? And now all of our lives, we would change something, right? Come on, we've got to be honest with that. But if there was have to be some radical change take place, then that's probably an indication, right, that you're not living in light of your imminent, inevitable death. Well, the truth of the matter is, that may be all that you have to live. In fact, you may have a week to live. You may have a day to live. And so Solomon's point, I think, is, is, is so um, practical that, listen, life is short, so make the most of it. Or as one person said, have a blast while you last. Have a blast while you last. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word and even the book of Ecclesiastes, which is, seems so uh, jaded at times in its perspective, and yet we know that uh, it was inspired by your spirit, Lord, and it's here in, in your word for a reason. And we just thank you for how raw and blunt it is in its exposure to the, the, our, our mortality and the inevitability of death. But thank you, Lord, for the hope that there is here about enjoying life. And thank you that, Lord, you want us to enjoy life, that you gave us all things to enjoy. Lord, you gave us food, you gave us clothes, you gave us cars and houses and wives and children and, and, and vacations and, and, and a job and, and, and all these things, Lord, that we can enjoy. And uh, hobbies, golf, tennis, water skiing, or whatever it is, our hobby, that we, Lord, these are all things that you want us to enjoy, that you enable us to enjoy. Thank you for being a good and gracious God. And I just ask that you would help each of us to live uh, more in light of eternity, that we'd think more about the fact that we're going to stand face to face with you someday, and that we would want to live with a sense of urgency, um, a sense of great passion and zeal, even knowing that those around us um, could only have a week to live or a, a month to live, and, and we want them to know Christ before they die and so before they stand before you and so that we would be urgent even in our evangelism and how we share the gospel. And so, Lord, I just thank you for uh, this text, and Lord, I just pray that you would help us to learn how to maximize uh, uh, our enjoyment in life by just meditating on our death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.